All right, two questions to begin this morning. First question is this, how well do you know your family? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, do, you know, do you know where you come from? And I don't just mean geographically, but do you know the culture uh, from which you come? Do you know the values that have shaped your family? Do you know the perspectives that have long been sort of embraced or adopted by those you call family? How much do you know about your family? How much do you know about the priorities of your family, the convictions that have been held by those in your family, the struggles or the accomplishments of, say, your grandparents or maybe your great-grandparents? Are there big world events that have shaped your family? Or are there individuals' accomplishments that opened doors or closed them, <laughs> and, and those have affected your family, even maybe before you were born? By the way, is anyone related to somebody famous? I thought this might be fun. Anybody have a famous relative, Dan? Johnny Appleseed. Wow. Can't get more American than that. That's great. Yeah, Ezekiel? Zachary Taylor, the president, not the baseball pitcher. Really? That's awesome. Okay. I couldn't tell you anything about him. Uh, Kathy? Really? That is so interesting. We're going to have some fun conversations later. Anybody else? Yes? President McKinley's wife. We have some presidential descendants in here. Okay, wow. Yes, Jan? John Alden and Priscilla Mullins. I need an education, but they sound important. Good, yeah. Hello. Yes, because you're related to Jan. Yeah, you guys should get together. Good. Anybody else want to share? Yes. Chris, okay, very nice. You've got the height. Appreciate that. Cody, we're going to keep going. President Kennedy, is that right? Wow. All right. You guys are well, well equipped, well connected. Yeah, Mike? Really? See, isn't this interesting? So interesting. So in 2006, this uh, company gets founded called 23andMe. And uh, since then, five million people have sent them a saliva sample, which is pretty, pretty interesting. And, and, and the reason you send them a, a saliva sample is to find out a little bit more about who you are and where you've come from. And so if you navigate to the website 23andMe.com, you'll find an example of marketing that I think is brilliant. It's called the Thanksgiving Family Offer. And the words discover, share, and celebrate what connects you and your family appear over, as you can see, this kind of overhead shot of a, Thanksgiving, a big Thanksgiving feast. And family members are apparently sharing food just like they share DNA. And the bottom left-hand corner of the screen says 12.6% shared DNA. And the implied message is, oh, we are so deeply connected. At a cellular level, like the core of us is connected, at least to a certain degree, with one another. In fact, to be precise, 12.6% of my DNA is also your DNA. We are just so connected. I think it's brilliant marketing because not only does a service like this help me find out more about what makes me unique, but it gives me something to talk to my family about at the Thanksgiving dinner 
right, which apparently is a kind of an awkward setting for, for some, and, and we need something to talk about. So I think this is just brilliant uh, marketing. Let's get everybody to do this well in advance, and then we'll show up for the meal, and we'll have these great conversations. I think I can imagine some really beautiful conversations uh, happening at the Thanksgiving dinner. I can also imagine some really awkward conversations happening at the Thanksgiving dinner, right? Because even just this year, I've met with three people who have used the service 23andMe or a similar service like Ancestor.com or something like that and have discovered to their surprise and in some cases to their great relief that they are in fact not connected to their family biologically as they had previously assumed, right? And that may not be a topic you want to bring up at Thanksgiving dinner, I'm just not sure. How well do you know your family? Here's a second question. What's with all the stained glass and the statues and the mosaics in so many old, historic, especially European churches? If you've been to Europe, you've visited some of these relative, or you've visited these old churches, or maybe some of the, even the older ones in the U.S., like the cathedral in St. Louis, or there's a big one in D.C., you've probably noticed that like every square inch of the wall, of the ceiling, sometimes even the floor is covered with art. And much of the art is really amazing, and most of the art features people. And clearly, um, many of these, these big, amazing sanctuaries um, were built at a time when the church was the state, right? So that is a feature and a factor. And clearly, there's a significant financial component which enabled these amazing cathedrals to be built, and we could question that, we could criticize that. But if you can set that aside... For a second, why is so much of the art so feature, so focused on people, and not just people in general, but very specific individuals? Well, it's because the story of the Bible from creation through the Gospels, the ministry of Jesus, all the way through Revelation, as well as the story of the spreading Christian faith since the time of the Bible, is being depicted even in the very architecture and the art in the church itself. And the key people in that story, the story of the Bible and the story of the Christian movement since the Bible, those key people are being depicted in the art. So, for instance, the statue, the, like the pillars holding up the main room uh, are incorporated into these statues of the apostles. Or uh, the, the major prophets will take up this major kind of cornerstone role in the corner of, of the building. Or in the front part of the church, I don't really even know what it's called, but there'll be sometimes layers upon layers of, of statues of people and the, and the apostles will take like the foundational role or the prophets will take the foundational role and other statues will be stacked on top all the way to the top where usually we'll have a picture of like Jesus on his heavenly throne or something like that. In much of church history, when most Christians were illiterate and almost nobody owned a Bible, you could literally walk into an historic church and you could learn the story of the faith. Right? If somebody knew a little bit more than you, they could say, almost like, that's grandpa so-and-so and he did this, right? And you begin to learn like the story and the ark. You could literally walk in and learn the story from the ark. This is a picture of one of the three huge windows in the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, 
This is massive, and there's three of them. It was built in the 12th century. And the center of the window, if we could zoom in close enough, we could see it. But in the center of the window is a picture of Jesus. And then the ring outside of that are, are like the apostles. And then the ring outside of that are, are some of the saints. And then the ring outside of that are some of the other stories of those who have come after the early saints. So the whole window serves as a kind of family tree, like a spiritual family tree. It's like a 900-year-old mapping of the DNA of the Christian faith. And not only does this kind of art reveal our shared history, but it can powerfully communicate another really important reality, which is this. Our faith did not start with us, did it? Our faith did not start with us. It did not begin with us. It was passed down to you and to me through generations that have gone before us, faithful women and men who have gone before us. We are, in a sense, standing on their shoulders. Their lives have enabled us to get a clearer picture of reality and to see Jesus better. We're standing on their shoulders. So today I'm really excited to kick off a new series that will take the month of November. This is the the culmination of our preaching for 2018. It'll take us right up to the season of Advent. Advent begins a new church year. So for the month of November, we're going to do this series called Standing on Shoulders, How Lives Well Lived Help Us See Jesus. And I want to begin by looking at the opening lines of a letter that Paul writes to one of his apprentices, one of his young pastor students named Timothy. So if you, if you would, turn to 2 Timothy. Uh, the letter is called 2 Timothy, or 2 Timothy is what it looks like. We'll start at the beginning of chapter 1. And uh, it's on page 832 in this Bible that we distributed. I'm going to read this and then go back and make some observations about it. As I read this through the first time, I want you to try to pay attention to all the family language that Paul uses, all of the relational family language. This is the letter from Paul to Timothy, beginning with chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, peace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, And in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, or the Spirit God gave us, is not a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and of self-discipline. All right, a few observations about this. Paul refers to Timothy as my dear son, but we know from other writings that Paul himself um, gives that he never married and never had children. So Paul embraces Timothy, calls him his dear son, but he's a mentor. He's more of a teacher, but he's also like the spiritual father. And as his spiritual father, Paul has this deep affection for Timothy. He says he prays for Timothy night and day. He longs to see him so that Paul may be filled with joy. And Paul is also challenging Timothy. He's reminding him and instructing him like a father would to his son. 
And even though Timothy is not Paul's biological son, Timothy has received something from Paul. It's very real and it's very significant. In verse 6, Paul writes, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. All right, so Timothy has received a gift. It is the gift of God. It is some ability, some special ability that comes with a responsibility and maybe even authority. And this gift is in Timothy through the laying on of Paul's hands. And this is far from the first time we've read about this kind of concept in Scripture. In the Old Testament, fathers lay their hands on their sons and some sort of power or authority is conferred. Prophets will lay their hands on their successors and some sort of authority or spiritual giftedness is is passed on. We read about this in other places. Something of Paul's has been transferred to Timothy. But it's not just something from Paul. Paul says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. For what reason? For what reason is he talking? We'll go back to verse 5. Paul begins that thought, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. And then Paul continues, for this reason, the reason of your mom and your grandma, I remind you to fan into flame the gift God gave you through the laying on of my hands. And so Paul refers to Timothy as my dear son, and by that he means my spiritual son. And then he mentions Timothy's mother and grandmother, and now he's talking about biological mother, biological grandmother. This is, this is Timothy's physical or biological family. Timothy, in other words, Timothy probably looks a lot like his mom. He probably picked up some sort of nuance or some sort of trait or characteristic from his grandma. But in addition to that, Paul is reminding or is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. Where did he get that? It first lived in his mom or his grandmother, Lois, and then it lived in his mom, Eunice. So he's received some, clearly as a biological son, he's received some physical traits. Some DNA has passed, but he's also received a spiritual trait, which is this sincere faith. So in addition to passing on their brown eyes and maybe their slight build or whatever, they've also passed on their faith. Why is Paul bringing up all of this stuff? Why is he bringing this up? Because Timothy needs to be reminded of who he is. That's why. He needs to be reminded of who he is. Paul writes to Timothy saying, listen, God did not... He didn't actually say, listen, that's sort of how I feel. For, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. This verse, like most, has been widely applied to anyone who reads this letter for the last 2,000 years, and probably legitimately so. But initially, think with me, initially, originally, Paul is referring to the very specific spirit or nature of Timothy's spiritual family. It's almost like Lois and Eunice And Timothy and Paul are sitting around a big Thanksgiving table, and they've all sent saliva samples to 23andMe, and now we're going to open up the results at dinner as we all sit down together, and Paul states what probably everybody knows is obvious to anyone who knows this group. (laughs) Paul, yeah, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, did he? No, no, he gave us a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. It's kind of like, yeah, God clearly didn't give us the gift of height. Because everybody in our whole family tree is like 5'3", 
right? Or God did not give us this, this gift of longevity. There's, I don't know, there's a little DNA marker on chromosome 27, or it's not 27, that's funny, uh, 24, it's random, I'm just guessing. And nobody's lived more than 70 years, so, you know, tough for us, let's make it count, right? But then it's like he, does, he, gets, he says this, but Paul, or but God clearly did give us this fire. He gave us this fire. Right? We are passionate people. Uh, there's a sincerity of faith that goes way, way, way back. And you can picture Paul looking at Timothy and going, and Timothy, it moves mountains. This sincerity of faith that has been given to you from your mom and your grandmother, it moves mountains. It's like Paul looks around and he says, the 12.6% of our shared DNA looks like this, spiritual power, love, and self-control. Except that they're actually not at a Thanksgiving table. This is a letter that Paul writes to Timothy while Paul is in jail. And so Paul or Timothy receives this letter and he opens it up and he reads what Paul is saying. And Paul is saying what he's saying to Timothy because Timothy needs to remember who he is. And he needs to remember where he's come from. Paul says, God did not give us the spirit of timidity, Timothy. And the implication is, Timothy, stop being so timid. Stop being so timid. Word of your timidity has reached me all the way in prison. And that is not who you are. That is not what your mom and your grandma passed down to you. That is not the gift that God gave to you that was fanned into flame when I laid my hand on you. God goes, I mean, Paul goes on in the rest of the letter to really challenge Timothy. In one other place in the same letter, don't be ashamed of our Lord, he says to Timothy. In another place, don't be ashamed of me, even though I'm in prison. In another place, be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus, he says. And in a fourth place, endure hardship, Paul says to Timothy. And he also encourages him forward. He, he encourages him to boldly continue to preach the word and to do the work of, of an evangelist and to discharge the duties of his entire ministry. But in order for Timothy to move forward, he needs to also look back. He needs to remember where he's come from uh, so he can know who he is. In order for Timothy to do what Paul is telling him to do, which is to fan into flame the gift that has been given him by God. And I think we too can learn from Paul's words to Timothy. In other words, there are at least a couple of ways that I can see in this text itself that we can follow in order to fan into flame the gifts that God has given us. They are these, recognizing what has been handed down to us, and two, remembering on whose shoulders we stand. And like so many things, these are two different things, but they're not either or, they're both and. So let me comment briefly about each of these two, knowing that they kind of go together. First, what is handed down to us is that which is shared with us relationally. Sincere faith, in this sense, was handed down to Timothy from his mother and from his grandmother before her. And this is almost always the way Christianity grows. This is almost always the way the, the movement goes forward. Yeah, there are little blips on the radar of history where huge groups have gathered. They've heard one sermon, and they all convert to Christianity in mass. 
But like 99% of the time, the way the faith moves forward is one person shares it with one other person. And it just keeps going. Gets handed down like that. It was through a relationship with a cabinet maker whose shop I swept for my first job in junior high that I first was told about Jesus Christ. It's very accurate to say Tim Hansen introduced Jesus Christ to me. That's how it works. That's how it almost always works. It's how it's worked for 2,000 years. In John 4, Jesus taken a rest by a historic water well. Woman comes up to draw water from the well, talks to Jesus. Her life gets changed. She goes back to her hometown, tells everybody what she's learned and who she's met. They come out. They meet Jesus. Their lives get captivated. They tell everybody they know. Who tells everybody they know? Who tells everybody they know? And it just spreads like that. And this is more than just a random method of distribution of information. There's power here. There's authority here. In fact, there's this really interesting concept in church history called apostolic succession. And it is the idea that Jesus selected 12 men to be his apostles, his called out ones. And then those men handed on their authority and their spiritual power and the teachings of Jesus to others who handed it on to others who handed it on to others as time went down. And you can actually find these really amazing sort of spiritual family trees especially in historic churches, that mark the, the lineage of one minister all the way back through the one who ordained him, the one who ordained him, the one who ordained him, all the way back to one of the apostles. So like in India, the apostolic succession lines all run back through Thomas. Remember Thomas? He's the disciple that is referred to as the doubter. He's the one that comes to, Je that comes to the disciples after the resurrection. He doesn't believe it. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus shows up. He believes. And then he goes and tells everybody in India. And still to this day, 2,000 years later, one of the most common surnames in the southern part of India, which is historically Christian, is Thomas. The faith handed on, the succession, right? This, this, what is given, what is handed down to you? The faith, even the name of the one who shared the faith with me. So there are all sorts of meaningful and significant things that were handed down to you from those who have gone before you. And I'm saying you and I would do well to recognize these things as gifts. Even if much of what was handed down to you was broken. Because if you can be honest about those things, if you can name those things, if you can kind of step aside enough to look at those things and call them for what they are, even those things, those broken things, can be something that fans into flame the gift of God that he wants to give to you. Right? They can be fuel for your becoming who you really are. And then there's a second way we can fan into flame the gifts given to us by God, and that's by remembering on whose shoulders we stand. Remembering those on whose shoulders we stand. If the handed down dynamic refers to things which have been shared with us, like the faith handed down to Timothy from his mom, the standing on shoulders dynamic refers to ways that others' lives have shaped us. 
One kind of refers to what has been shared with us. The standing on shoulders kind of refers to, at least in my view, how we've been shaped by, by others. In other words, ways we've benefited from the efforts of others, ways our lives have almost literally been built upon the foundation of stability or security or uh, generosity that's established by others. Like, Paul, like Timothy's pastoral ministry was established upon and shaped by Paul's ministry. Timothy's sincere faith was handed down to him from his mom. But when it comes to his influence and his preaching and his authority and his boldness in ministry, boy, he's standing on Paul's shoulders. Where'd he get that? He got that from Paul, right? He's been shaped by, by this firebrand, Paul. Timothy can see farther and he can see Jesus more clearly because of Paul. Timothy can see the life of Jesus better because of Paul's careful teaching, because of Paul's faithful suffering, and because of Paul's spiritual insight. In other words, there's no way Timothy takes credit for the success of his ministry. There's no way he can take credit for that, right? God has given him gifts through Lois and Eunice and Paul. That's where, that's where the credit uh, belongs. Timothy's just standing on their shoulders, and those Timothy reaches will also be standing on their shoulders and standing on Timothy's shoulders as well. So two ways we can fan into flame. The gifts God has given to us are to recognize what has been handed down to you, good and bad, and to remember those on whose shoulders you stand. The faith didn't start with you. This interest in God didn't start with you. Now, here's how this happens most of the time. Those from whom we receive what we've been given and those on whose shoulders we stand, increasingly they become the same people. They become the same people. In relational terms, we call them families. In religious terms, we call them traditions. And this can be beautiful because we can become really good at a few things. Now, see, this is the way we cook chicken in my family. Right? We've been doing this for generations. We're really good at it because this is the way our family does it. We've been doing this forever. Or this is the strength of our tradition. This is what we're known for. Right? This is what we emphasize. We're really good at a few things because it's been part of our tradition. Who are you? I'm part of this tradition. We're known for this. We're good at this. It can also become a bit ingrown. right? And it, and it can be very limited in perspective because we stop recognizing that some of what we've been handed down has come from people outside of our family. Oh. Or some of those on whose shoulders we stand are not even part of our tradition. So to wrap up the preaching for this year, 2018, all the way to the end of November, I've lined up a couple of really interesting Sundays. And uh, I'm really excited for these. Very different. If you're new with us today, uh, know that this is, this is going to be different for all of us. Um, but... Uh, really exciting. Next week, I'll be interviewing a good friend of mine who is a Dominican nun. Her name is Sister Maximilian Marie. We've been friends for about 10 years, and I asked her to share about one of the most influential Christians you've never heard of. Her name is Catherine. She was born in Siena, Italy in the 13th century, and she had a major impact on the story of the Christian faith as an illiterate teenage girl in the 13th century. 
And Sister Maximilian Marie is living out her devotion to God in an historic Christian tradition that is, in some ways feels very different from what feels like kind of native or home to many of us. But seeing the way she sees Jesus is going to help us see Jesus more clearly. It's going to help us see Jesus more clearly. And then the following Sunday, our friend Rabbi Joshua Rubenstein is going to be back. Rabbi's a, I mean Rabbi, Joshua is a Jewish rabbi who embraced Jesus as Messiah. Josh has a powerful ability, as many of you have heard, to communicate the Jewish backgrounds of the teachings of Jesus. Some people are still, this is a bit fascinating to me, but some people are still surprised to learn that Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. Uh, much of what you read in the Gospels, if not all, practically, it has to do within the context of this big elaborate system of Jewish festivals and, faith and, um, and traditions in which the followers of Jesus were fully participating. I know only of two or three of you who are ethnically Jewish, but the reality is all of us who claim to follow Christ are standing on the shoulders of the Jewish faith. So they are our, our spiritual foremothers and forefathers, and remembering them and seeing Christ with this background is going to help us see Jesus more clearly. And then finally, the last Sunday of November, we'll discuss a teaching by Dr. Martin Luther King, who responded to the love of Jesus by confronting racial injustice, which you probably know, but what is less known is he also applied his, his um, love for God by addressing the devastating silence of the church in the face of racial injustice. And so we're going to read a sermon that he wrote to the church, of which he was a part, and we're going to talk about that. King called the church back toward the heart of God uh, for suffering and for the poor, uh, for, the, for the suffering and for the poor and we need to build on his legacy if we're to engage in any effective sense in the brokenness that's happening in our world today. If we can stand on his shoulders, we'll be able to learn better how to confront violence with love, and that will help us see Jesus more clearly. And it will help a whole lot of other people see Jesus more clearly, too. All right. So that's where we're headed. Let me wrap up with a series of questions. And as I went over this again this morning, I, I, I said, man, this, this kind of feels like a prayer. So I want to just invite you to sort of either close your eyes or maybe, like me, you pray with a pen and paper in your hands. Maybe you write these things down. But let's embrace these five. It's just seven quick questions. And maybe we just uh, consider these like as a structured prayer. Will you ask God to help you recognize what's been handed down to you? Will you remember on whose shoulders you stand? Will you embrace what's good from your history without endorsing all of it? Will you reject what's not good from your history without rejecting it all? Will you work to see the wisdom and the spiritual wealth of other historic Christian traditions?
Are you willing to learn how to learn from others? To see what they see. And finally, can you, will you listen to voices from outside our family, from outside our tradition, in order to learn how others have responded to God's love so that you and so that I can gain a fuller perspective and see Jesus more clearly. Have mercy, Lord, on us uh, as we um, open up our eyes and minds uh, to some voices beyond what we typically hear in the next couple weeks. And what we're looking for ultimately, as you know, Lord, is this compelling alternative to offer to the world, to the bitter, divisive, self-centered consumerism that's affecting everything. So please give us the grace we need um, to learn and to see and to put into practice the truth in the name of Jesus. Amen.